organizations who are making such a big difference. But once they work through that process, then they narrowed it down to six organizations, which, you know, ranged from us to do this important work around the world, supporting abortion survivors. So the babies who survive abortions and their families who are impacted by that. So, you know, there were organizations like us, Thrive Nation out of St. Louis, who do great work in their pregnancy centers and are growing a national brand presence. And we have Equal Rights Institute, who, in Josh's words, he likes to train pro-lifers not to be weird. That's what Josh would say. <laughs> Sounds like a good uh, mission. Yeah, I mean, that's the mission right there. Uh, he'll say that, you know, he wants to train people to have conversations and make an impact in those conversations. And then we saw folks like uh, Human Life Alliance out of Minnesota who have been doing this work since the 1970s and put out great information, especially on college campuses. And then you have uh, Good Counsel maternity homes. I mean, there were just so many incredible organizations, and we were grateful to come out on top, not only because that 50000 means a lot to a growing organization, but really the message that it sent from our supporters who made this possible. And frankly, Dave, in all those organizations, even though the impact is powerful, I truly believe healing abortion survivors and families is the one of the biggest gaps that has existed in the pro-life movement. And really, if we want to you know, take a shot at the abortion industry, healing and then raising the voices of those who they attempted to kill. To me, that is a big win right there. Yeah, for sure. And uh, real quickly, and then we'll get straight to your story, because I know so many people are eager to hear it. Uh, this was based on a, a vote. You won the most vote. It wasn't, and, and I've, I understand that this is called like the pro-life Oscars. So when you came to the event, yeah. did you already know that you were going to win? Or was it like the Oscars where you have to wait until they announce it? Right, right. Yes, red carpet and everything. Um, you're right. It is. It is the red. The the red carpet for the pro life movement. We did not know. Uh, you know, I think probably one of my favorite memories from this is going to be sitting there as they were starting to name people, and all of a sudden it got down to the last two of us. And I looked at one of my staff and thought, "This is amazing. This is what we wanted." But what am I going to say? <laughs> Thank the Academy. Right. Uh, exactly. So, so you knew exactly. you were going to get something. All six get something. You just don't know the amount. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. The okay. Were three awards of five thousand, ten thousand, uh, and then I think fifteen or twenty, and then fifty. Oh wow! So, wow. Well, uh, and how are you? you know, well, let me, let me get to your story because I've been teasing this too long. Um, Melissa Odin is my guest, again, director of the Abortion Survivors Network. And she doesn't just, you know, represent abortion survivors. She is a, an abortion survivor, a failed saline infusion abortion in 1977. And Melissa, you sent me some information, uh, you know, to prepare for this interview. And I just want to have you, you know, fill in some of the blanks. But it, it says here, after being poisoned and scalded, by the saline abortion over five days, Melissa was born alive in the final step of the abortion procedure, despite demands made by her own grandmother, a nurse at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa, where the abortion took place. A courageous nurse ultimately rushed her off to the NICU. So tell us the circumstances of, you know, the, the, the attempted, uh, and thanks be to God, failed abortion back in 1977. Absolutely. You know, the reality is, Dave, babies survived abortions before Roe versus Wade. There were thousands upon tens of thousands that were starting to figure out 
that still occurred during Roe versus Wade. And I can tell you that babies are still surviving abortions today. That's part of the work that we do is serving mothers who have attempted an abortion and they're considering another abortion. They're often coerced. That's, that's a whole nother story. But the brief version would be what even led me to this place is what happened 45 years ago. My birth mother, like many women, was not given any choice except a forced abortion. And as you saw in my bio, it was my birth mother's family who really was responsible for that. So you could have found my, my birth mother's family sitting next to you at church every Sunday You know, they knew the biblical and the scientific basis for when life begins. But when my birth mother faced that unplanned pregnancy out of wedlock at the age of 19, my grandmother knew how to make a secret forced abortion take place. So bypassed hospital regulations and procedures. And as you read, I was poisoned and scalded for five days. Usually that procedure lasted about 72 hours, but in my case, They just could not induce my birth mother's labor. And so, of course, all signs were pointing to the fact that my life would be successfully ended. That was always their intent. And now I know they were starting to even wonder that my birth mother might lose her life as well. Mm, Amazing. Did you, obviously you were born and, uh, you know, you had respiratory distress, jaundice, seizures, neonatal distress, and, and and who wouldn't after five days of right. saline, you know, poisoning? But obviously you, you sound like healthy. Or have you had health issues throughout your life or anything that continues because of this? Or did you overcome it altogether physically? Right. And that's one of those fascinating questions people have about survivors like me. You know, I am an adoptee as well as an abortion survivor. In our work, we have found actually most survivors are raised in their biological family, but I am an adoptee and a survivor. And so I received a clean bill of health really by the time I was five. You know, I think my mom and dad would say by the time I was a year old, the doctors were feeling pretty good about how I was continuing to develop. But yes, the the prognosis was very guarded about what my life might look like. I have, you know, one kind of nagging thing as a survivor physically, that is that I develop shingles consistently. I'm probably around 15 times at this point. I've kind Mm. of given up. But it's because of the amount of stress I endured in the womb. So we know research tells us that babies experience the stress of their mothers. So think about for survivors, our mothers were experiencing stress. And then we go through the stress of an abortion procedure. For me, the stress of being laid aside for a period of time, the stress of a NICU. And so it's like my, my switch got turned on in my body and I can never quite turn it back off. Yes. I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but uh, did you have any further relationship with your birth mother or birth uh, grandmother? Did Was there any kind of reconciliation or how did that turn out? Yeah, the short version of that story would be I found out that I survived the abortion when I was 14 and set out on a journey to find my birth parents. Didn't find out who they were until I was about 30. And then it took another seven years after that to have some communication with my birth mother. I now have a great relationship with her. My mom and dad will always be my mom and dad, but my birth mom, Ruth, and I live in the Kansas City area. We didn't know that she lived here when we moved here about 11 years ago. 
one of my half-sisters also lives here. And God has really reconciled, you know, so many broken pieces. And I always want people to understand that, you know, this is the beauty of what happens when there is life, right? There's a chance for God's will to be walked out. And so, yeah, Ruth and I, you know, get together as frequently as we can. Our My kids know Ruth as another one of their grandmothers. They adore her. And in terms of my grandmother, she did pass away uh, over a decade ago, and we never had any kind of communication. She did know, obviously, that I had survived the abortion, and I now know that, unfortunately, she kept that a secret hmm. from Ruth. So Ruth spent well over 30 years of her life believing that I had died that day at the hospital. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And how, how did uh, Ruth take the news? So you said you found out when you were 14 and then you went and searched. It sounds like that October baby movie. Was that based yeah. on your, was that based on your story? No, it actually wasn't. I mean, it, uh, as you can imagine, the producers of that panic, the first time they met me right after. I <laughs> You're going to ask for some of the, uh, the royalties. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They looked at me and they said, we did not know about you. I swear. And I said, I understand. I don't think you know about most of us, but I mean, that's some Holy Spirit inspiration right there. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where there are so many women, as you can imagine, Dave, that wish that they were in Ruth's shoes to know that their child survived their abortion. And that is one of the most difficult pieces that I deal with as an organization and truly as just an individual hearing from women reaching out to us and saying, could you tell me if my baby survived my abortion as well? Yeah. Amen. And what was that first uh, physical encounter with Ruth like? Was <laughs> I imagine there were some tears. Was that pretty emotional? Incredibly emotional. I like to think I'm a pretty effective communicator, but describing to people what that was like truly leaves me speechless. It was you know, one of those things we really had communicated for about three years before we met face-to-face. So in some respects, it was like we knew each other really well. But at the same time, there is, you know, you know that you've been waiting your entire life for this circumstance. So it was sacred and emotional. And, you know, the moment that my half-sister put Ruth's hand in mine, Ruth went to hug me and she said, I never got to hold you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that boy, that that's uh, that, yeah, that that that's amazing. Well, praise God for the the reconciliation. I'm sure it was so uh, so beautiful for her, but <laughs> emotional nonetheless. Uh, Melissa Odin is my guest, uh, founder, director of the Abortion Survivors Network. They recently won a fifty thousand dollar grant at the National Pro Life Luncheon, sponsored by Heroic Media, and uh, talking about her own. Uh, thanks be to God, failed saline infusion abortion back in 1977 and her work now. Uh, Melissa, you have a master's degree in social work and have done a whole lot working in substance abuse, care, mental health, domestic violence, sexual assault counseling, child welfare. How quickly after all this transpired and you found out at 14, you met Ruth, how quickly did you say, I want to dedicate my life to helping others? Or did that come quickly? It didn't. I mean, I think, I, again, I hope this is encouraging to other people. I mean, obviously, I've always had a heart for, you know, providing care for hurting people. But I never thought, Dave, when I started sharing my story back in 2007, that I would give up my career that I loved. I mean, all of us 
you know, I think struggle with giving God certain things. And for me, it was my career. I would say, I will give you everything except this thing. I love this thing. This is who I am. And it was this process of having to let go of the plans I had for my life to accept this vocation. And it has been such a blessing. I can't imagine doing anything else but this, but I, I do think all of us struggle with whatever that one or two things are. And so I hope that your listeners can take encouragement to say whatever you're holding so tightly to your heart, that is probably the one thing God needs to use, use the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. You testified before the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate and also the Australian Parliament. And I did not see those. I'm sure there's video somewhere on YouTube of that, perhaps. How, how did that go? And how, how did elected representatives respond to your story? Well, as you can imagine, it tends to be a partisan response, unfortunately. I... You know, when I first started to speak publicly, I started to do some advocacy at the state level. And I can tell you the first time a member of Congress, their staffer called me, (laughs) I had said, no, I don't think I'm the right person for this. Uh, I just didn't think that I had what it would take to stand courageously. And, you know, again, I think it is this, this acceptance of God's will that he goes before us. And I will never forget the first time I walked out of congressional hearing, I called my husband and said, I am never going to be afraid again. Hmm. And, and that's what the enemy wants. I think is for us to sit in this place of fear and shame and thinking that God is not enough. And so, you know, obviously I walk into the lion's den anytime I go into those hearings and I know that every single time, even though there is disrespect or ambivalence shown towards me, I know that I can walk away from that knowing that I did what I was called to do and that it plants seeds. It may not be an immediate change response in that person, but I have to believe that it does make a difference. Yeah, without a doubt. It's interesting because a lot of times people say the aborted child, the, the, you know, the victim has no voice, but you have given these babies a voice, obviously, and you speak so well, because in most cases, the aborted child is not seen, not heard of, just dispensed with and, you know, thrown away. But uh, what a blessing that your voice is out there as well. Can you tell us, Melissa, about the Abortion Survivors Network? You mentioned in the information you sent me that your team has connected with about 650 abortion survivors as of March of this year. How, How do you do that? How do you find these people and what typically is the the response when you know you do connect with them? Absolutely. Yeah, we're now pushing around 660, but I can tell you, Dave, if folks go to our website, abortionsurvivors.org, they can read research based on a, a model of Canadian data. And I can tell you that Canada and Australia's data models look very similar in terms of a 0.21% failure rate in their abortions. I had an abortion supporter recently on our social media, you know, essentially poking fun at it saying, oh, you know, 0.21%, that's nothing. Well, it is something to the 0.21% that lose their lives from it and the 0.21% of women affected by it and the 0.21% of men and the families and the, the abortionists and the nurses, right, all of those people. But also when you run that data year after year, it is a significant number. So here in the United States, when we correlate that, and you can go to our website, 
click on our map and even see what that looks like in the last reporting period. And I can tell you, Texas in particular has a high number of correlated abortion survivors based on this data model. But it looks like just under about 1,800 survivors every year in the United States. You take that times nearly 50 years of row, you could fill a Super Bowl stadium. Mm. So... We're on a mission to find them. You know, we are still growing. That $50,000 grant will help us in a big way, but we don't have a budget to market to them right now. I can only imagine what happens when we do, and we're preparing for that. But for now, what happens is they do a Google search. You know, things like, do babies survive abortions? Are there abortion survivors? And they ultimately find us. And most survivors are incredibly shocked to find out they're not the only one. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm curious, your, your response, I'm sure you heard a, a few years ago when I think he was the governor of Virginia was asked about abortion survivors, and he had that real callous response about, oh, we'll put the baby aside and let the doctor and the mother kind of decide the fate. This just, this this cold, callous, you know, response to some people, from your perspective, what, what do you think when you hear things like this? Yeah, it was initially very traumatic, actually, for me, because that is so similar to what happened to me. And it was one of those things that I didn't really want to talk about, because I didn't know, Dave, that this was a response that so many take. And so, you know, it is callous, and it was incredibly hurtful. And I can tell you, it drove out huge numbers of survivors and family members saying, we are not going to exist in the shadows anymore and we need help to deal with these kind of comments, even when they're coming out in the media. But I would tell you that unfortunately that response is very typical for many medical professionals and particularly of course, abortionists and abortion workers. And that is something that still happens today. So people don't recognize this, but inducing labor with the intent of the child, not surviving that at that stage of gestation or with the intent to leave them to die is an occurrence. Texas in particular, again, you have some reports that come out. There were seven survivors in one particular year that, that I believe is obviously an underestimate. But when you read through that, Dave, you'll find that those children were not provided medical care. And you are not the only state that we read that in. Melissa Oden is my guest. Just a couple of minutes remaining. And obviously, if somebody listening right now, you know, it's, it's probably rare. There might, there might be an abortion survivor that's listening or may suspect that and they can get in contact with you. What, how else can our listeners help you, support you, volunteers, funding? Uh, well, what else should they know in, in when they go to abortionsurvivors.org and, and see your website? Absolutely. We have a need for all the things. So people can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, that includes information about events that are happening, data, interviews that we're, we have survivors in. So we serve, obviously, infants through their mothers up through childhood. We run support groups now for biological parents who are raising their survivor. We have support groups for adoptive parents who maybe are having questions about the child's development or how to tell them their story and when or why. We have social workers who help with that. Then we serve adult survivors with individualized healing support. I wrote the curriculum. It's self-guided, and we have peer support. And then now we have opportunities for survivors to share their stories publicly, be in video projects, do outreach in their state. You guys are going to see that happening. So newsletter, sign up for private um, prayer reports and needs that we have. Volunteer needs, trust me, they're huge. And also if people would prayerfully consider if they can give to us financially, 
Um, I can tell you that we are efficient, sacrificial, and we are impactful. And the $50,000 wasn't enough to carry you for the, uh, for the rest of the year, was it? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I know. When you run an apostolate, a nonprofit, it sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but uh, probably just, you know, uh, a small portion of the, of the, bud- the budget that, that you have. Uh, the website is abortionsurvivors.org, abortionsurvivors.org. And I'm sure, do you have a pretty busy speaking schedule? Do you travel a lot around the country and the world? I do. Uh, You know, of course, after COVID, my international travel slowed down. But uh, yes, people can find me all over the place across the United States speaking at various events. We also have survivors who we are equipping who feel called to share their story as well. And again, we have a really strong pocket in Texas in particular. And so you're going to see and hear more of those survivors sharing their stories. Even on college campuses, we want to be in churches not only speaking truth, but also healing people who have been impacted by abortion. Amen. Melissa Oden, thanks so much. Appreciate uh, taking some time to be on the interview of the week with us. Uh, Everybody, please go to abortionsurvivors.org. That's the website for the Abortion Survivors Network that Melissa founded. And uh, I did mention in your bio that uh, she and her husband, Ryan, uh, reside outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, they have two daughters, Olivia and Ava. I assume that's still the most current uh, information, right? <laughs> That's correct. Okay. We did first communion and uh, confirmation, so that is correct. Amen. Praise God. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, congratulations on all the success. What, what a beautiful, beautiful story. And I know also we didn't mention your book, which is called You Carried Me, A Daughter's Memoir. And you also have another book, which is going to be published uh, this year as well. And I'm sure all that information is on the website, abortionsurvivors.org. We just ran out of time, but uh, Melissa, thanks so much. I also want to thank Olivia Franklin for, uh, again, um, suggesting this interview and connecting me with uh, Melissa. So God bless you, Melissa, and thank you for your work, and congratulations again. Thank you. All right, this has been the interview of the week here on the KTH 910 AM Guadalupe Radio Network. And if you have suggestions for future interviews, please email me directly, Dave Palmer at grnonline.com. God bless you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the KTH 910 AM interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. Glad you are with us, and I just love this program because it's a great way to introduce you, our dear listeners, to the wonderful things happening in both the Dallas and the Fort Worth Diocese, and there's a lot going on. There's a, This is an exciting place to be a Catholic, and I'm very excited over the next 25 minutes to introduce to you a new venture, something very exciting, Happening in uh, the, the the city of Fort Worth, and this is a new high school that is in the works. And I uh, got the whole team here with me in studio. It's a private, independent high school called Chesterton Academy, and they're located online, Chesterton Academy FW and uh, I have been in communication with the uh, leaders and founders of this group for some time. I went to an information session uh, last year. And I have in studio with me Carlos Crespo, who is serving as the president uh, of uh, Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth. And also uh, the vice president, Stephen Barmore, is here. But uh, he is not going to be speaking, but he is here for moral support. And uh, the secretary of the group, Doug Allen, is here. And uh, he is a convert to the Catholic faith back in two. 2012 converted and uh, he and his wife Genevieve have three children I should say Carlos and his wife uh, have uh, one child uh, who his name is Charlie 
And also uh, very blessed to have in studio uh, with me as well, Jeremy Duo, who has been selected as the headmaster. And I think that is brand new news. I think we're breaking that news on this broadcast right here. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here uh, with me. And uh, good to see all of you. Great to be here, Dave. Thanks. Yes. Thank you, Dave. All right. Uh, uh, let me start with you, Carlos, uh, as the president, the founder. I think this was kind of your idea. How, how did, uh, what was the genesis of this whole idea? And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about Chesterton Academies because it's not just in Fort Worth. This is something that has been going on nationwide for a while, right? Correct. Correct. Uh, Chesterton Academies, well, this fall, there are about uh, between 10 and 15 new schools uh, opening that would bring the whole count I mean, worldwide because it's not it's not just in the US to almost 60 schools mm. this this fall 2023 and how did it start well uh answering the uh, the great commission that our lord uh, gave us uh, so back in the day my 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 son was uh 2 years old now he's uh five and a half he would say uh i thought of um yeah, doing something for for our community uh it is true in fort worth uh, i think Fort Worth needs more more options as far as uh, uh, high schools that teach in the Catholic tradition, uh, and so I uh, I called Stephen. We had a beer one night and said, <laughs> "Hey, um, I mean, you have two young daughters at, at the time. Now he's got three. Uh, what do you think about doing for high school for your kids?" Um, at that point, I mean, uh, he's um, uh, uh, he's homeschooling uh, his daughters, uh, and so uh, we thought, "Yeah, why don't we start um, a high school ourselves?" And uh, God put us in, in this jo- on this journey to um, to start a high school. And at the time, I was reading G.K. Chesterton, which is, was was one of the writers that influenced Stephen's conversion. Mm. Uh, Stephen was the one that gave me the, my, the first book I read of uh, by G.K. Chesterton on orthodoxy. And so I became a Chestertonian, and uh, providentially, yeah, I became a member of the Society of G.K. Chesterton. And I heard that they're opening schools, and they teach you how to open a school. Well. And uh, yeah, here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah, I didn't realize it was uh, worldwide. It was started in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? Of course, Chesterton was British. Right. Uh, he was from England, but mm-hmm. uh, it's so nice that, that there are 60 uh, of these uh, already. And uh, a private independent high school teaching in the Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. uh, well, what does that mean? And how does that designate this, this school in the, in the big picture of the Catholic mm-hmm. world here locally? So this will be an independent private school. Uh, ninth uh, private high school, ninth through twelfth grade. Uh, this first year, this fall, we're we're going to start with the ninth grade uh, class only. Uh, when I said a private independent school, that's independent from from the diocese. Uh, we will not be a diocesan school, uh, and it'll be a, a, a school that teaches in the Catholic tradition. With that, that that uh, that that means that uh, it will teach classical education, so all the humanities along with uh, math and science, uh, art, drama, debate. Uh, in the humanities, you can also include uh, languages, especially Latin. Uh, and yeah, that, um, yeah that's, uh, that's uh, the, the, the high school we want to start in, the, in, in, our, in our hometown. In yeah. Fort Worth. Yeah, very nice. Uh, Doug Allen, um, I have your bio here. I didn't read all of it. Uh, busy guy, very accomplished, done a lot, doing a lot. I don't imagine you have a whole lot of spare time in your hands, but this is clearly important to you. And uh, you and wife, your wife, as I mentioned, have uh, th- three children. Uh, and why, why is this important? Uh, what is your role as secretary? If you can tell us a little bit about why you got involved. Sure, yeah. Um, 
uh, Carlos and uh, Stephen approached uh, approached Cynthia and I a couple of years ago and asked us if we would be uh, interested in in looking at this and uh, joining the effort. And uh, it just so happened that uh, she and I had both been praying for an opportunity to get involved in something that would make an impact in our community. And just coincidentally, um, I had just been invited to an event at the University of Dallas um, where the uh, Archbishop of Erbil, Iraq, was in town um, uh, raising support for the Chesterton Academy of Erbil in Iraq. Oh, wow. And I had spent uh, three years working in Iraq um, uh, back in the uh, early 2000s and had been to Erbil and was familiar with the city and um, uh, came to the event and uh, got, to, got to participate in a Chaldean Rite Mass uh, celebrated by the Archbishop. And several members of the Society of G.K. Chesterton were here for the event. And they talked all about these academies and the one that they were opening up in Erbil. Um, and it was so exciting to hear uh, the work that uh, was being done there um, and kind of throughout the Chesterton Schools network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this just seemed like it was the perfect opportunity that Cynthia and I had been praying for. And, you know, we live in Fort Worth, which is a city that is exploding. It's growing. The diocese is growing. It's a dynamic place to be. Um, Catholic families um, are moving here. And what we found, especially post-COVID, was that the homeschool community was really taking off. And we homeschooled our kids. And my wife and her conversations with uh, her friends in the homeschool community, there was a real desire for additional options for Catholic education in Fort Worth. And so all of those things just kind of came together for us, and we just felt like it was an answer to prayer. Yeah, amen. Before I uh, speak with Jeremy, I'd like to talk to you, uh, Carlos, about, you know, the clearly one of the, the biggest decisions that you and the board, uh, you know, you and Stephen and everybody have to make is who's going to be the headmaster. This is really important uh, who you choose. I was delighted at your choice because I've, I've known uh, Jeremy and his wife even longer. I've known long, long before they ever got married. I knew his wife's family and so speak very highly of them. I think very highly of them. So tell us about that decision and why Jeremy is the right man for this job. The British accent. <laughs> <laughs> Which we haven't heard yet. But <laughs> Yeah, well, um, yeah, back in the day, yeah, we were, you mentioned uh, info session. So a year ago, we had our first one. We had a couple more after that during 2022. And it so happened that, uh, yeah, during that time, uh, the time of the third info session, which was yeah, just last November, we were starting to... Um, uh, put ourselves out there uh, hiring, uh, you were hiring a a headmaster. So we were searching for a headmaster. Uh, I had several calls from from teachers who were looking for opportunities here and there. Among them, Jeremy, who, yeah, he's, yeah, I mentioned his British accent. So he's he's British, uh, married to a Texan. So that's why he's he's here in in Texas, in in North Texas now. And uh, I think you know, he'll he'll talk about his uh, academic career. Uh, it was in, in, in I think someone in Steubenville and at Franciscan University referred him to Chesterton Academy. Yeah. And so, so and he found us online. He called me. Uh, I invited him to the info session. And the rest is history. I think, yeah, Jeremy will tell you the rest from, from there. All right. So this is uh, the big reveal here on the interview of the week of Jeremy Duo as the one chosen to be the headmaster of the Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth. So, Jeremy, uh, congratulations and uh, good to see you. Thank you. Likewise.
All right, there's that British accent, okay? <laughs> uh, so tell us about yourself. You're not on the website yet because it hasn't officially, I guess, been uh, announced, but uh, Carlos has said a little bit about you, but can you tell us uh, a little bit more about your background educationally, you know, your, your faith background and your family? Yes, yes, uh, I'd be happy to. So I kind of came back to Catholicism, not having formally left it, uh, but just kind of I wavered during my teens and... When I was 18, I came back, and I, I came back through the door of really apologetics. Uh, I just got into uh, reading tons of apologetics books, and then I wanted to formally study theology, and somehow, thanks to a, uh, an obscure nun from Gibraltar um, in Spain, who is now the mother superior of a Carmelite convent, uh, she said, you know, I think you should go to Steubenville. <laughs> and I said... Uh, Sister, you've been here too long. You know that's in America. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so uh, she somehow managed to sort that out uh, from the convent for me without the use of email. Uh, she had a guy who would come and print responses and she would handwrite responses back and he would go and email them and all that. Uh, and yes, I ended up in 2013 uh, at Franciscan. Uh, I did a, a degree there in theology, catechetics and philosophy. They called me a filthy cat <laughs> and uh, met my, my wife three, three weeks in, uh, who is, of course, from Euless, from mm-hmm. the area. Yeah. Uh, and then we got married uh, just, just at the end, uh, three semesters remaining of my, of my bachelor's. And then after that, we moved back to Gibraltar. And in Gibraltar, uh, concurrently, I studied, uh, I did my master's in, in theology, still at Franciscan online while I opened uh, a catechetical institute called the Saxum Institute, where we, um, where a friend and I were teaching uh, theology, philosophy, and then eventually Latin as well, to the interested public, right? And it was always my lament that I could not teach uh, as many high school-aged uh, children as I would have liked, because, mm-hmm. um, be- you know, they spend most of their days... Uh, 9 to 3.30 engrossed in their studies and then they have all the homework and so the time that I would get with few of them was always very sparse and I wished that I could be there full time. Mm-hmm. I wish that not just me but the Catholic tradition, the wealth that the Catholic Church has to hand on to them could be there, there full time and by that I don't just mean religion and theology but also mathematics from a point of view of the Catholic Church like what's that for? Why do mm-hmm. we use that? You know just uh, and even just uh, science and, and history and art and, and all these things that a classical education affords you, uh, that was always kind of my uh, my desire. Yeah, my desire. So when I came here, um, we moved because of uh, I, ju- I wanted my children to have more space to run around because Gibraltar, mm-hmm. where I'm from, is very very small, two and a half square miles for the whole country. Uh, and when I came back, I came back through Franciscan again. I went to visit some friends and professors and actually my sister who is currently finishing her bachelor's there. And I sat down with, with a priest and he said, so what are you going to do? What are you going to work as here? And I said, I have no idea. What do you think I should do? I mean, I said, I, I want to teach. I don't think I could not teach. And he said, you need to teach at a Chesterton Academy. Mm. And I said, what's that? <laughs> And he explained it to me, and, and I said, yes, yes, that, that does sound where I want, would like to teach. And he said, well, let, let me make some calls. 
Uh, he actually got uh, not very far with that at all. But when I came down to to Euless, my mother, my mother-in-law, who is uh, a big fan of the Icon community in Irving, uh, she sent me a link. She said, "Hey, have you heard of Chesterton Academy?" I said, "Just last week, I did." She said, "Well, apparently they're hiring." So uh, I sent in my resume, and soon thereafter, I spoke to Carlos, um, and then to Stephen. And I really liked what they had to say. Apparently, uh, they liked what I had to say. They told me that they were looking for a headmaster, and I said, "Well, if, if I can help you with that, and I, I'd be willing, talk to me about that." And we did, and one thing led to another, as they say, and now here we sit. Mm, very nice. So, uh, Carlos, you know, you're in a very interesting situation. You're going to have one grade, ninth grade only. I don't know what the goal for the number of students is. Are you hiring teachers, or maybe that's a Jeremy question? I'm not sure. Uh, what's what do you? What are the next steps? I know fundraising is also a very important and vital part of it as well. But uh, where are we right now, and what are the biggest needs? Well, I mean, you you lead a nonprofit organization, so yeah, the fundraising is is constant, always. That doesn't that never stops. So yes, that's one of our our, our biggest needs. Uh, teachers, yeah, we uh, have a couple uh, prospects. We are hiring uh, a few more. I'll probably let Jeremy speak to the details. It's been Jeremy and Stephen taking care of the the hiring hiring of teachers. So yeah, I'll, I'll pass it on to Jeremy if you want to know more about the the teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are you looking for more teachers, or where are you in that process? Absolutely. Uh, we we need um not a few teachers we have a few candidates that we are considering some of them are very strong uh, who uh, in fact we have made unofficial um offers so to speak just because we're waiting on that fundraising that that's so crucial to come in but we are definitely looking uh for teachers who could um teach mathematics and and science and also literature and music um uh, as well as any others that that uh, even though we have candidates for, we would like to hear from other people too. So also philosophy and uh, and art and history. So I mean, if anyone uh, feels called to share that or or would like to be able to share such a such a knowledge base with students within uh, a Catholic environment where where you can unite head and heart in that way, then please reach out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And um, I, I'm, yeah, you guys aren't, you know, reinventing the wheel. The, this is already going on in many places across the world. And, and, and so are, are you speaking to other headmasters? You, are, how, how much of it is, you know, going to be unique to Fort Worth? And how much of it is, I guess, for lack of a better expression, kind of a, a cookie cutter approach where, hey, this is how it's working in all these different places. And this is how a Cheshire Academy works and the curriculum is this way. How much autonomy is there and how much uniqueness to the other academies around the country and the world? Yeah, I think the interesting point there is that if it were a chest, if it were a cookie cutter, Chesterton would not be the mold, mm-hmm. right? Because Chesterton himself uh, is part of a far larger tra- tradition, right? The, cl- the classical tradition goes back centuries, right? Uh, and it's the church really who makes it what it is, although it even precedes what we know as the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right? Um, going back to, to the Greeks and, and perhaps even farther. Um, but what, what the church has done is as she has handed on a tradition 
uh, an education that speaks to what man is, right? And she is the only one, because of her acceptance of the revelation of Christ, she's the only one who fully knows what man is, what he is made for, where he comes from, right? And that he ultimately, by grace, is destined to the beatific vision. And so an education that educates from the point of view um, of, well, with the point of view of that, right, is an education that can be called complete, if, mm-hmm. we, if we may. And so what Chesterton himself and what the Chesterton network of schools is doing is handing that on. It's instead of reinventing the wheel, as you, as you say, it's like, let's do what always worked. Mm-hmm. Let's hand on what we always handed on. Let's hand on what we ourselves received. Right? And we kind of live in, in, in a time where perhaps some, some of these things or all of these things are being eschewed and cast out as old or, or, or backwards or whatever, but uh, infidelity to, to Christ, the magisterium, the church, the saints, the tradition, I think the network is saying, hey, this is the pearl of great price as far as education goes. Let's not cast it out or cast it to swine. And so now we are the great inheritors of what the Chesterton uh, Network has prepared. And so we're, we're thrilled to receive this great work that they've done in making it accessible to, to people like Carlos and Doug and Stephen who are grassroots Catholics, right, who just want to do something for the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we are now um, kind of at the gate to be able to, to bring this great work of the network out uh, to Fort Worth. Now, that being said, every person in every Chesterton Academy is unique, and so everyone's going to put their own flair, their own spin on it, right? We, we don't want to depart uh, from what's handed on to us, but we, want, we do want to make it our, our own and hand it on with our own fingerprints. Yes, yeah, a great answer. Thank you so much. We are talking about exciting news, a new high school coming to the city of Fort Worth, Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth. It's a private independent high school. will be serving eventually ninth through 12th graders uh, this coming fall. The plan is to have ninth grade only and then adding uh, a, a class each year. It teaches in the Catholic tradition. I have in studio with me the president, Carlos Crespo, along uh, Vice President Stephen Barmore is here. Uh, Jeremy Duo has been chosen as the new headmaster and also to the secretary of the organization, Doug Allen, is here and uh, really appreciate again uh, your time. There, there's some other big news that y'all have uh, released as far as location and also a new board member. Do you want to speak about those two, Carlos, and anything else that we're allowed to reveal as uh, the information kind of trickles out uh, re- regarding the Chesterton Academy? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, one of the uh, recent news, uh, which uh, we have made uh, public uh, to our distribution least, uh, list, uh, at least, is uh, the, yeah, the, the location of the school. Uh, it'll be located at uh, 1000 uh, Bonnie Bray Avenue. Uh, and uh, yeah, we think it's, it's conveniently located. It'll be, it's a small space, like I said, just four rooms. So we'll be there uh, very temporarily, probably a year to two years. In the end, uh, yeah, we hope to be more uh, permanently located uh, west of, of Fort Worth, mm-hmm. southwest preferably, west of 35. Yeah, and the other news, I'll let uh, probably Doug um, say that about our uh, newest uh, board member. Who's a member of my <coughs> parish, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Courtney, yeah. Courtney Taylor is her name, mm-hmm. and uh, she's, uh, she's an attorney, and she has really, and just in the, in the brief time she's been on the board, it's brought a lot of expertise 
uh, to our board that was much needed. And so we're, as we are trying to stand up the school, we're also trying to fill out the board with different talents um, uh, and trying to find people that can bring uh, their own unique skills um, you know, to the board. And she has been a great, great addition. Mm-hmm. I mentioned about how you and Stephen both converts, uh, GK Ch- Chesterton, a, a convert uh, as well. So there is, uh, that. And I, I just, you know, Jeremy spoke beautifully about what's unique and, and special about the Catholic faith really being the only, uh, faith that is really able to explain and develop and educate the entire person. As a convert yourself, Doug, why is a Catholic education important for you to pass on to your children? That's a great question. Yeah, we, um, you know, as as uh, as we started having kids, um, we started uh, oddly enough. I think this is a universal experience. We started paying more attention to the popular culture and how that impacts, um, you know, parenting and uh, child development and. Uh, and as we looked around, we saw that, um, you know, for, um, uh, for, I think for all of us, you know, the, the, the $64,000 question is how do you keep your kids in the faith? How mm-hmm. do you, how do you form them and how do you uh, prepare them to go out into the world and to withstand the, the, the onslaught that they're going to face as a, as a Christian? And so, um, we firmly believe that, you know, a real thick, a thick formation, you know, in the tradition is key. And, um, and that's why we've chosen to homeschool. And that's one of the reasons we are so excited about the Chesterton Academy because, and Jeremy's very eloquent on this. The Chesterton Academy is not a, is not a place where the Catholic faith is an ancillary part of the education. Mm-hmm. The entire curriculum is integrated to point the student toward the highest good. And that is what is so exciting for us. And that's what we really want for our kids. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for being here as well. We've got about a a minute and a half, and I never want anybody to leave saying, gosh, I wish he had asked me this. And so I want to just give Carlos and also Jeremy an opportunity, just anything else that our listeners should know right now, uh, other than obviously going to that website, ChestertonAcademyFW.org. Uh, got about a minute. Uh, what, what, what else, Carlos? No, 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 no rush, but you yeah, got a minute. I'll, I'll just t- take 10 seconds and I'll leave the, the rest to Jeremy. Uh, just please pray for us. Uh, it's, it has been a, a, a rough road, uh, very difficult, a lot of work, uh, and uh, we can only do that with, uh, with your prayers and, and your support. All right. And I, I would add that, uh, as, as the homeschooling champions would say, every child is homeschooled, whether the parents know it or not. And I would encourage those who, are consi- who have been homeschooling and even not to allow, allow us to help parents Right as we educate in their stead, um, to continue that homeschooling and schooling them at home, at home in the Catholic Church. And then entrust them to somebody they trust, like yes. Chesterton Academy. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think everybody has learned a lot. Again, if you can help in any way, financially, prayerfully, uh, if you have a, ri- a rising ninth grader and you'd like to look into this next year, Chesterton Academy fw.org is the website all the information is there chesterton academy fw.org thank you very much uh, carlos crespo jeremy duo doug allen and also stephen barmore as well we got another interview coming up uh, on the 15th a monday a live interview that uh, jeremy and we'll get to introduce stephen at that time and hear his story as well this has been the interview of the week thank you for listening thanks to uh, cecil anderson for running the board and uh, for your support dear listener of all the great efforts going on here in North Texas, ChestertonAcademyFW.org is the is the website. God bless you. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's KATH 9:10 a.m. interview of the week. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Catholic News. Thanks for listening to KATH 9:10 a.m. Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth, and North Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone.